We Saw Sing is a movie podcast about remakes and sequels. In preparation for Little Women, being released this weekend, Jay and Chris watched Little Women, released in 1994. We saw a thing and talked about it. I have loved you since the moment I clapped eyes on you. What could be more reasonable than to marry you? We'd kill each other. Nonsense. Neither of us can keep our temper. I can we're both stupidly stubborn, especially you. We'd only quarrel. I wouldn't. Oh, you can't even propose without quarreling. The following conversation has been edited for brevity. Do you want to say some stuff about that movie we watched with the women who are little? You see, it's a weird movie. I don't typically like movies like little women. You don't like movies about women? No. <laughs> for shame. <laughs> Now, you know, you know, this genre of movie that is it's like the Anne of Green Gables television series or the, the miniseries. Um, it's like this slice of life movie where you get these characters, but you get them for like, you know, little 15 minute anecdotes over the course of like 10 or 20 years. And I don't generally enjoy those types of stories because I never feel like I'm getting enough time to really get to know the characters before we're like skipping off into some other thing. And I really thought that the first half of Little Women was like that. And so I struggled to watch it. I was I was just telling you before we started recording that I fell asleep twice while I was trying to watch it last night. But for whatever reason, the second half really got me. And I kind of want to go back and rewatch the first half now. I mean, taking away the fact that you were probably sleepy through the first half and you had to go back. I think you should, because I think there is a lot of characters set up in that first half that you you might ha- not missed because you're not the kind of guy who misses stuff. But maybe you were too drowsy or or in and out because a lot of the stuff about not being the typical family, not being of that typical society and not being each sister is so different and set up so differently at the beginning that you might actually get a different payout when Joe finally kisses Frederick or not Beth's death. Beth's death is just sad. It's just a sad time. And and weirdly, that's the moment that it that it started mattering for me, this story. I really love slow burn stories. I really love stories where the first hour, not much happens, but it's at the benefit of the ending. And I did not expect that from this movie. The second half doesn't land if you don't give a shit about these characters. And that's what most of the movie is building up, is their relationship to each other. Beth dying matters because of the love that they've all shown for each other, that intense sisterly bond that they had as little kids. And I think that everybody sees themselves in one of these sisters. And I don't mean that from a from a point of view of every girl obviously identifies with someone. I mean every person. Because there are moments when Beth is saying, I didn't want the lives you wanted. I just never wanted to leave home. Where you can totally identify with what Beth is saying. For sure. And then there's times when Joe feels like an outcast. And you're like, yeah. I've been there too. You're a creative person who's just trying to do something and the world doesn't want you to do it either because you're a woman or because your philosophy boyfriend thinks vampires suck. I don't know. (laughs) It was this great 
thing watching Little Women now. I I, I had seen it before, uh, but watching it again this time and identifying with almost all of them, mm-hmm. I had a hard time identifying with Amy. Me too. Especially because, I mean, it seems like a dick move a little bit to marry Lori. I, I don't know why. I know Winona Ryder's Joe is like totally cool with it by the end of the film. She's got her Frederick. But I also feel like, what the shit, Amy? <laughs> Lori, I don't believe him when he wrote that letter that said, no, it's not that I just want to be part of your family. It's that I want you. And I don't, I didn't believe that moment. (laughs) I do not believe you. No. Eddie, come on. You want in this family hard. And also you get these little 10 minute slices of their lives and like, it's this weird moment where Lori, who's like very clearly like in France, just to like bitches and like live that bachelor life and he looks over and is like oh amy got hot and that's the look that crosses his face and then he's like yeah now no i'm gonna prove to you that yeah i don't know man like yeah all the other moments we've gotten of him up to that point where we see him in france he's been kind of like a cool dude. Like he's really cared about her family and, and all of them. And he's really cared about Joe very clearly. He loved her and he's been like this really stable, nice guy up until that point where very clearly Joe just rocked him and he is, you know, out living his best bachelor life, just trying to forget about her with drinking and womanizing. But that was a weird moment to just be like, Hey, you're hot now. Let's hook up. Yeah. I, I don't know if I, if I'll ever really understand that. And I don't know if I'll ever truly believe that he's over Joe. I did definitely feel that connection at the end between Gabriel Byrne and Winona Ryder under the umbrella. And that line just crushed me. I I, I have nothing to give. I, my hands are empty. And she puts her hand in his hand, says they're not empty anymore. Oh my God. God, you just crushed my soul a little bit there. <laughs> and I and I loved it. I love it was a great line. It's a great line. It's too bad Winona Ryder isn't a better actress. It really is. Like, I mean, did she peek at Edward Scissorhands? Was that her best? Because I'm trying to go through her filmography and really go, I can give you credit, but I think the films work around her versus her elevating those films. Well, this was also a weird one, right? Claire Danes has proven to be a really talented actress. She's okay in this movie. Yeah, she has a couple moments that are gripping, but the the other times are pretty, like, whatever. And everybody is in that ye old American English proper, yes, really giving that they're all instead of being normal people. Yeah. which Which is hard sometimes to really cut through with the acting, you have to wait for the subtler moments. You have to wait, you know, for Susan Sarandon rushing into Beth's side or her subtle digs where she kind of disapproves of Meg deciding to marry because she feels like it's giving up herself, but then swinging it right back around. It's like, wow, you, Susan Sarandon, you delivered that really well mm-hmm. because for for a moment there I thought you were an ass <laughs> and then it was the other way around and I was like wow that's really good but again Susan Sarandon is a genius actress and she was okay in some parts and great in other parts when I'm watching a movie and I feel like 
the acting is really inconsistent or, or something like that, I always end up blaming either the editor or the director. Because generally speaking, if there's moments of brilliance, then you should be able as the editor and the director to find those moments and piece them together or push for more of those moments while you're filming. And again, it's why I keep coming back to these kinds of movies is like there's this genre of movie where it's like the filmmakers are like, I don't know, I got six months. Let's hammer a thing out. And so you get these weird like tonal inconsistencies because it's not something they've spent two or three years in pre-production on. I agree. And you have brought up the tonal inconsistency in other films. I don't know if that's here. This feels pretty paced well and the tone doesn't seem to shift too much from overly dramatic all the way through. Sorry, I'm saying tonal inconsistencies, but I mean acting inconsistencies for this specific one. Okay, yes. And there are. There certainly are. Just real quick, you're absolutely right on Susan Sarandon. There was an oh shit moment where I was like, oh! Literally when Susan Sarandon was like, or this could be a school, and looks at Winona Ryder and is like, wouldn't that be a challenge? And walks away. And I'm like, oh, boy she just like <laughs> laid that into you do it joe like i don't i couldn't believe how invested i was in that moment when joe's come back from new york thinking she's kind of flopped and just that like delivery was like oh thug life mic drop all of this. Oh, it was such a great moment. And I love that moment. Again, we've had so much time with these characters having so much love and respect for their mother. In other lesser stories, that's played off as like a, oh, that was my idea moment from Joe. And in that moment, you could tell that she processed what her mom said and went, oh, wow, maybe that is something I would love. Yeah, good call, because there's a lot of that, yes. right? There's a lot of like the mother seems to take a back seat, but you want to see how she has influenced these kids. Yes. And that was such a key moment for that. Just because in that moment, you could tell that Joe was taking ownership of it because she has that relationship with her mother to just look at it objectively and say, that's a great idea without being like, oh, my mom's trying to push me into something, right? Because that's never been the relationship. The relationship between those two characters was always, well, you're not, go, you're not happy here. Go find yourself. I support you. I'll miss you, but bye. That's what you need to do. Absolutely. And it's exactly what she needed to do. Her living there with her sisters, who she loved so much, was holding her back. And- Out of all the daughters, Joe and her mother do seem to be the closest fit together. While I'm sure that mom loves all of the kids, I'm sure she sees the most of herself in her rebellious Joe. I wondered, just because of the way the story's told, where it's from Joe's perspective for the most part, and she's certainly narrating it, and so... I get the feeling that that story she writes at the end is just, you know, it's the it's the it's the Hobbit writing the Lord of the Rings. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Totally. So I, I got the feeling that maybe there was more to that relationship that maybe we didn't see. My immediate initial thought was, oh, Joe's mother sees so much of herself in Joe and also sees maybe decisions that she wishes she had made at Joe's age to be a little bit more in the world or to take more risks and be a little bit more adventurous. Because I don't think you get that moment of, listen, I'm going to miss you, but leave. If you don't have somebody who understands what it's like to feel that way. Yeah. 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 I agree. I agree with exactly what you're saying. (laughs) 
I had to think about it for a second because I was like, do I agree with Chris on what he's saying? It's like, no, 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 that's exactly it. it it's sort of like passing on what you've, you have to someone and watching that someone take it. I think it's also something that parents struggle with just as a whole. Parents you hear about, like the sports parents, their dream was to make the NHL, but they never did. And so they're going to push their kid until they make the NHL and live their dream vicariously through their child, right? There's something really unhealthy about pushing your dreams onto somebody else, especially kids. That's what I really loved about Mrs. March is that I felt like in those moments she was a little bit doing that, but it was in such a healthy way. Like, do whatever you're going to do, man. But like, here's what I think you should do. And then being supportive of her while she went off and had those adventures. Absolutely. I think each daughter is different enough, but when they're all together and they're all sitting together with their mom, like it, it just feels cozy. This was the kind of movie that made me feel like it's almost Christmas. Right. And I wanted to wrap myself in a blanket and sit there and just, and feel all those feels like hmm. when Beth is at the piano after being sick and they sing deck the halls. And I was like, Holy crap, this is so warm. This yeah. feeling this movie is giving off is just warmth and cozy. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why anyone looked down on that house. Cause good Lord, 2019 called. That's a beautiful house. <laughs> the next door neighbor at, at the beginning of the movie is like, well, they used to be one of our more upscale families. Are you that pompous? You have the same house. Exactly. <laughs> You know what? This is one of those stories that I'm glad is being remade as a period piece. I think it needs to have some of that old school charm to it and some of that like repressive energy of, you know, women can't vote and, you know, women are kind of less than and wow, your daughters have a lot of energy. Are you sure that's okay? It added to the love that I had for these characters who just wanted to be more than society really wanted to let them be. At least in Joe's case, anyways. And it's so interesting that you say that because that point at the boarding house when they're all having a conversation and Joe's the only woman there and she makes her point and the men are like, oh, Joe, you should have been a lawyer. It would have been awesome to hear Joe be like, yeah, no, that's the point. I'm a woman. Can't do that. Well, I also thought that was an interesting moment because they all stopped to let her speak, but only after a man told them to. Oh, that was pretty, pretty, pretty weird. Right? And then I felt like she said something and it was very, it was well-worded and very profound. And then I think I took something different from that moment because I felt like them saying you should have been a lawyer was like, wow, I didn't know women had brains. That's That was sort of how I took that, where they were just shocked that she would be able to say something so eloquently and so well thought out and something that they would inherently agree with. And the, the overall conversation that was being had was weird because it was like women don't need the vote because women are perfect and men are animals, so animals need to vote. Like, it was such a bizarre conversation to begin with. I mean, maybe that was something that was actually on the books. I don't know a lot about the suffrage movement and and why women were not given that proper... Uh, I mean, I understand that to a degree women were lesser. At least that's how the world saw them. But I did not know that they were like, 
women are angels and don't need to vote. And men are like filthy heathens. So that's why they get to. And like you, I don't know much about that time or that movement. But d- didn't that feel like such a placating thing to you? A little bit, yes. Yes. Where it was, no, look at you. You're all cute over there. Just be cute over there. Yes, it, it certainly did. Because I don't understand why you would have that conversation and not include everyone at the table. That doesn't seem right. It's got to be like a societal norm thing. It's such a bizarre conversation. Yeah, it was. It was a bizarre conversation. I don't know. Maybe it's like one of those things where like, you know, I'll have a conversation with people with my dog in the room, but I'm not going to include my dog in the conversation because he's a dog. That would be very exciting if you did. (laughs) But, But like, let's transfer that, right? So what if at the time the woman's in the room... But of course she wouldn't be part of the conversation. That's like where the those weird, like, toxic societal norms seem to come from, in my opinion, is it's just a thing that's always there and it's always done that way. And so you don't think about it at all, let alone critically. And it takes somebody like a Joe to sit there and go, hey, here's a different perspective. And then the room goes quiet and the people who are open to a different perspective have to internalize that because it's so ground shifting for everyone in the room to have her say something that they inherently agree with, but have never thought about before. And I guess the other side of that was you really felt like Frederick wanted her to be heard, but then literally a couple scenes later when she, she finished a novel, she finished a novel that is enormous. And he just dismissed it for like, ah, this is fairy tales. And it's like, but you let her come to the table with real thoughts. I know he was trying to push her to be better in her writing. And obviously he did succeed somewhat at the end where she got to write Little Women. But she should also be allowed to write all that other stuff. See, and again, I think that this comes back to the that kind of pop in and out storytelling. If the bulk of the storytelling had been him pushing her to be better, if they had had a larger conversation about, oh... Joseph March. Oh, okay. You're writing under a male pseudonym to get it. Okay. Well, you shouldn't have to do that. Like that was very clearly his intention there was like, oh, well, why wouldn't you just use your own name? Like you got more in you than this. Like, why are you wasting your time with vampires? You've got a heart in you to tell stories that nobody else is going to tell. Like these are dime a dozen stories and you've got something else. You've got something special over here. If they'd spent more time on that relationship, I wonder if we would both feel differently about those moments. Cause you're right. They just, it was so weird to have the shifts like that. I want to talk a little bit about what Kirsten Dunst as Amy did to Joe while we're talking about a novel because Joe finished a manuscript and this little bastard (laughs) threw it in a fireplace. Yeah. As somebody who writes stories for fun and has never been published, if someone threw all my stories in a fire, like I was so hurt for Joe in that moment. Yeah. And not knowing the story, I really thought that that was going to take things in a bit of a different direction. Because at the end, when Amy comes up and is like, hey, sister to sister, is me marrying your best friend okay? I feel like we just continually learned things about Joe. Yeah. Hurt or not, the people that she loves are just going to be the people she loves. And that that was her strength. You know what? Now that you say that, I think because she threw that manuscript in the fire, 
I never was okay with her as a character ever again. When she was like early on and she had the limes and she got struck by the teacher, I'm like, well, screw that teacher. Yeah. And then when she said her thing about you have a choice in who you get to love, I was like, Amy, you, you're kind of right. Yeah. Like there were moments where I was like, I am on your side. All these sisters can look at you foolishly. You want what you want and I get it. And then she threw that thing in the manu- the manuscript in the fireplace and I was never again on Amy's side. Yeah, that's fair. From that moment on, Amy stopped really mattering to the story too. I, I mean, it should really matter to Joe and Lori's friendship yeah. later on. Yes. But because there's no more Teddy Joe stuff after the proposal, it really is like just push those two characters aside. I would have loved to have seen this as a miniseries. That's an interesting idea. Like the more we talk about this, the more I'm just like, man, it's too much story for a two and a bit hour movie. I think we got enough of them as little kids to get it. Like we got the relationship. But the thing that we didn't get enough of was the things that were happening to them as adults, right? We didn't get enough of Lori going around and philandering and trying to find and trying to forget Joe. We didn't get really anything about Amy except how it affected her relationship with Lori and then it by extension how it affected Joe, right? Like I didn't think that all of this was going to wrap around Joe so tightly, but it just very clearly does. It's just such her story. And the moments that we pop in and out of are the moments that would directly affect her. I I would love to see more of it. So we we normally cover on this podcast uh, action movies or superhero movies, family adventure movies. This is a drama that we're talking about because... This weekend, the Greta Gerwig reboot comes out. Uh, It has a stellar stack cast. Well, also the 94 version did too. Mm -hmm. I won't say that it won't because everybody in there seems to be playing a pretty good role uh, for the time they were big and famous. But we have Greta Gerwig's reboot coming out and that's why we're talking about it. So before we talk even at all about the idea of this reboot, which, which is by the director of Lady Bird, I didn't love Lady Bird. I'm going to say it. It's not that I don't like movies with women. Obviously, we both seem to have a little bit of affinity for this story. Mm -hmm. But I want to talk really quickly about period pieces because we never talk about period pieces like this. I am always on board for being transported somewhere else. There was a movie a couple years ago. It was in my top five of the year. It was called Far From the Madden Crowd. It was itself a reboot. It was like glorious and it was a romance and it was a sweeping epic through decades but what do you think of these period pieces and these dramas we never ever talk about this stuff uh when we're talking movies because it's not usually the movies in our wheelhouse true i mean specifically for this podcast the reason these movies aren't typically in our wheelhouse is because these movies don't typically get sequels <laughs> i mean we watched a remake before the remake comes out we didn't even watch the original version of this this movie I don't typically go for period pieces, and it's not for any other reason than typically they're a little bit slower. But there's a lot of period pieces that have come out in the last couple of years that I'm very interested in. The setting is never the thing that is attractive to me. It's always, is there some sort of like plotting or is there actors in it that I love? 
something like that. But I, I don't typically go for these period pieces because the actors and actresses that I love aren't always in period pieces. So That's totally fair. Like very clearly you and I have a love for good storytelling regardless of what that looks like. And I think that that's what's important to us as far as like wanting to start a podcast like this is it gives us an excuse to see movies that maybe we wouldn't have seen otherwise. We're lucky, I think, that around the Charlie's Angels and the Terminators and, you know, whatever Marvel movies we're going to be having to watch next year, whatever DC movies we're going to have to watch next year, whatever whatever garbage Hollywood throws at us that we're going to be watching for this podcast once in a while. I love that we're going to get movies like Little Women and Stand By Me because we're watching amazing stories. It's such a palate cleanser. You're totally right, because you know in January when the podcast comes back, I believe this is, in fact, the last cast of this year that comes out. This is the episode that will end season one officially. That's right. When we come back in season two, there's probably going to be quite a bit of superhero mayhem (laughs) that will happen at the very front end of the year once again. Aren't we kicking it off with a Bad Boys reboot, remake? Like (laughs) Amazing. You see what I mean? So it is really great that we get to watch these movies like Little Women. So obviously we had an opinion on, on what we thought about this. We talked about it. And I don't know how to end this. I don't know why. (laughs) That's okay. I'll find an end point. That's probably going to be it, isn't it? Probably. (laughs) I don't know how to end this. That's going to be the end point, isn't it? Your little giggle. And then it's going to go, next week we watch. (laughs) (laughs) We saw a thing and talked about it. Strap in because season two launches with a bang. The boys watch Dr. Doolittle and they also watch Bad Boys. Both episodes will be released on January 16th. We Saw a Thing is hosted by Jay Kennedy and Chris Shapcott. Produced by Shapcuts Media. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a review in Apple Podcasts.